In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. Today we're going to do something a little different. Today, I'm the guest. On Thursday of this week, I was invited to speak to the Capital City Republican Women's Luncheon in Salem, as the name implies. So that speech is today's show. In the first half of the 13th century, invading Mongol armies wreaked havoc in Eastern and Central Europe and reached all the way to the edges of Western Europe. In the 1220s and 1230s, they had been punishing Russian principalities that had become less than willing to pay the tribute expected of them. The Mongols, who became known as the Horsemen of the Devil, seemed everywhere, striking in multiple locations across five fronts. In 1241, the Mongols turned to Hungary. With its fertile grasslands, it could prove to be the perfect base for their horses and a launching pad from which to attack Western Europe. Perhaps for some, the invasion of Hungary may have been a glimmer of hope, since the Hungarian army of King Bela IV had what many considered the finest cavalry in all of Europe. Who better to face off against the devil's horsemen than Europe's best Christian horsemen? On April 10, 1241, the two armies met at the Battle of Mohi, facing off across opposite sides of the Sajo River. Bela's troops of 100,000 outnumbered the Mongols by at least 20,000. But the Mongols split their forces, outmaneuvering the Hungarians with half of them crossing on hastily made pontoon bridges further downriver, circled back around to attack from behind. Although often thought of as barbarians, the Mongols had brought advanced technology for the day, catapult-fired explosives. And safely out of reach on the other side of the river, they drove back and confused the vaunted Hungarian horsemen. King Bela lost 60,000 of his troops before retreating. Pressed in on two sides and realizing they were about to be encircled, the Hungarians made a desperate charge, broke through the lines, and fled for their lives all the way to Croatia. Left unprotected, the cities of Buda and Pest were sacked and looted, the latter on Christmas Day, no less. People fled, hoping to be spared. They watched in complete and hopeless horror as the Mongols moved across the countryside at will, plundering, unleashing terror tactics, taking what they wanted, burning the rest, and hunting down bands of resistance. The unarmed villagers and townspeople faced all of the unspeakable violence that you would rightly imagine from a 13th century army of looters. It was an experience shared all across Europe. The Mongols achieved a string of virtually unbroken victories, crushing Christian armies caught unprepared at the outset and which were subsequently unable to unite and defeat a highly mobile force whose goals were not to occupy, but rather to extract loot and supplies and provisions to be sent back to the emperor. Many in Europe feared that they were at the end of the world. The mindset of many, and even in the church itself, was, where was God in all of this? Europe was spared only by the death of the Mongol emperor, which caused the Mongol army to retreat. At the end of December, when the news finally reached the armies, the Mongols turned toward home. A successor had to be chosen, and the senior commanders would be needed to discuss and vote for the next Khan in a traditional meeting of all of the tribes. The Mongol army that had invaded southeastern Europe, including Hungary, became known as the Golden Horde. They withdrew to the plains between the Black and Caspian Seas, where they set up a new capital, 
expanding the Mongols' territory to the very threshold of Europe. The other armies withdrew to their homelands to celebrate and to share the spoils and to boast of their victories and of the weakness of their enemies. By the time the Mongols withdrew from Hungary, one quarter of its population had been slaughtered and virtually all of the towns and villages had been destroyed. With the respite, King Bela returned home to the destruction left behind. You can imagine his despair. You can imagine the country's despair and anger and most of all, fear. With the overwhelming defeat, Bela could have sent an envoy to work out tribute to be paid and hoped that they would not be punished like the Russians if they couldn't pay. Instead, he set to work, because he feared that the Mongols would one day return. First, he was forced to face the brutal truth, the harsh reality that his country had been poorly prepared for Mongol invaders. He rode across the country and listened to reports and gathered information and assessed what went wrong. And he took stock of where they did have successes. What he pieced together was this. Hungary had few fortified positions. Most of its towns and cities had no walls at all. This was a key observation because the only points of successful resistance were Hungary's few stone-walled castles. And despite having the finest cavalry in Europe, the kingdom's army was primarily made up of lightly armored horsemen. Perhaps he or his advisors considered adopting the Mongol style of warfare of speed and quick strikes to become like them, but better, to out-Mongol the Mongols. But Bella noted that a small contingent of heavily armored knights, Templar, and Teutonic knights were the only ones who had managed to inflict serious damage on the Mongols during encounters. After gathering this information, King Bella set out to rebuild his army and instituted major reforms throughout the country, not knowing if his changes would be successful, only that he needed to do something. And not changing was the best way to lose again. He reorganized and rebuilt his army around heavily armored mounted knights in the style of Western European armies, offensive strength combined with protection. He struck a deal with the Crusader Order of the Knights Hospitallers, giving them his southeastern frontier in exchange for them recruiting and bringing in additional heavily armored knights. The Hospitallers excelled at military building, and he used their expertise to raise new castles and to surround cities with stone walls and fortifications. Another lesson from the Battle of Mohi was his army did not have nearly enough crossbowmen and archers, whose deadly bolts could have reached across the river to take out the catapults. He struck a deal with the Venetians, who were famous for their crossbowmen, and at least 1,000 of them entered the service of the Hungarian kings. Finally, he offered grants and incentives to cities and towns that fortified themselves and raised walls for their own protection. Faced with the options of either protecting themselves or near certain annihilation if the Mongols returned, more than 100 fortresses were constructed and all of Hungary's main towns and cities became surrounded by strong stone walls. King Bela died in 1270 before seeing whether or not his efforts would bear fruit and whether he had given his people the means to protect themselves to fight off the invaders should they return. Fifteen years later, in 1285, a vast Mongol army once again invaded Europe, Eastern and Central Europe, being the logical grounds for expansion for the nearby Golden Horde, and Hungary was their main focus. Led by a new Khan, Nogai, the Mongols once again divided their forces into two armies, striking Hungary from the north and from the south. Nogai Khan led the army in the south, entering through Transylvania, while his kinsman, Talabuka, led the northern army. The Mongols relied once again on their previous winning tactics of speed and surprise, 
attacking in winter, expecting to catch the Hungarians off guard and to quickly annihilate any and all resistance. But, unlike before, with unwalled towns ripe for the plucking, with storehouses filled with a recent harvest, Talabuga faced walled castles and cities. Even the small villages packed up and took all of their provisions with them and fled to the safety of regional castles. This time, the Mongols found themselves marching through miles and miles of territory devoid of plunder. Unable to feed his army, food being the most basic need of any army, the Mongol general lost thousands of his men, not to sword and crossbows, but to starvation. Though they tried, the Mongols were unable to take any of the fortified regional castles and constantly suffered attacks from heavily armored contingents of Hungarian knights who would sweep in, do damage, and then retreat behind the walls of nearby castles before the Mongols could bring their army to bear. Losing men by the thousands, the northern army was forced to fall back to regroup with the southern army. Before they could, they suddenly met the full might of the Royal Hungarian Army of Heavily Armored Knights and personally led by King Ladislav IV. Their numbers already reduced, exhausted and hungry, and suffering low morale, the Mongols were soundly defeated. Realizing continuing south was hopeless, Talabuka ordered a full retreat home. But on the return trip, they were attacked again. By the time he finally made it back to Mongol territory, his army was gone. One chronicler, obviously exaggerating somewhat, said Talabuka returned home with only his wife and a single horse. Nogai Khan fared only slightly better in the south. He managed to remain in the Transylvania region until spring, looting three towns there, but he too was unable to conquer any castles or major cities. King Ladislaus turned south to attack the Khan's army, except by the time he arrived, the local knights and army had already mostly destroyed the invaders. All that was left for the king to do was to harass the remnant until it finally passed out of Hungarian territory. King Bela's reforms worked. Hungary was saved, and the Mongol generals limped away, lucky to escape with their lives. Perhaps the most successful element of his changes was to deny the enemy provisions. Starvation crippled the Mongol campaign and inflicted as much damage as the Hungarians' new military might. King Bela's reforms were so successful that the Mongols never again launched a full-scale invasion of Hungary or in the rest of Europe. Every major defeat requires major reforms. To make winning choices, you must assess what you did wrong and what you did right. And lessons learned from defeat can create a major victory, provided one has the courage to make the changes. So while your brain is digesting that, Thank you very much for having me. It is an honor to be here today, and I truly appreciate the opportunity. It's good to see some familiar faces, and especially good to see some new ones. If you're like me, you were not satisfied with the results of 2022, and certainly not 2020, which I do believe was stolen through a combination of election fraud at the ballot boxes and through COVID. And even if you're not inclined to believe in direct election fraud, it was certainly stolen as a result of a massive disinformation campaign that was designed to remove Trump from office. With what we know now, Donald Trump was never going to win that election. As for 2022, we did have some success, just barely, but it was an underperformance if ever there was one. And also, if you're like me, you want to know how can we do better? How can we defeat the Mongols, the Marxists, this time? Much like King Bella, to win, it means foremost determining not to give up, to face the brutal facts, to assess what happened and what needs to happen, to assess the enemy and the battlefield. 
I still try to use the word competitor rather than enemy to be polite. But honestly, over the last three years, I do not think there's any doubt that elected Democrats who are no longer trying to hide the fact that they've gone full Marxist and far too many of their voters do not love this country. That itself is the mindset challenge with which we need to come to grips. If we adopt the mindset, the Mongols just want to be friends and they're a lot like us, we'll continue to lose. If we think the Marxist Mongols have similar goals to ours, just different approaches to get to a freer, better America, we'll lose and lose and lose some more until there is nothing left of America as founded and intended. Today, we face our own golden horde. They seem to be everywhere, attacking on all fronts in so many aspects of society. Schools, the economy, business, the media, social media, entertainment. Everywhere you look, there's a woke leftist torturing and beheading their small piece of America. 2022 was especially disappointing to me in the sense that we didn't seem to learn important lessons from 2020. We should have won more than we did, a lot more. All the important issues were right there on our side, and we didn't win walking away. Education was a huge thing. People were in full rebellion mode about COVID. We were beginning to learn that what we had suspected about COVID was true, all of it. COVID was always more about power and control than it ever was about public health. The momentum in 2022 was so on our side. The Democrats had horrible polling results and disapproval on all of the major issues, the one exception being abortion. Conversely, the Republicans were a big in favorability on all those same issues. Crime, education, COVID response, school and church business lockdowns. And wasn't that the true blessing of COVID? With virtual at-home learning parents who were also forced to be home due to their employers in lockdown, parents were able to see and to hear just what their kids were being taught. Part of me also thought that we would not see the blatant cheating that we saw in 2020. Some laws were passed, some reforms did happen, but then toward the end, Pennsylvania openly defied a Supreme Court order where they said they were going to count the votes that had been ordered not to anyway. I don't ever remember that sort of thing happening before. And that was a huge warning sign that things were not going to go according to plan. And the in-your-face cheating in Arizona, I mean, could that not have been more blatant? The problem was we had not learned enough from 2020. Ballot harvesting, for example. 2,000 mules was released in May 2022, yet with all of the exposure, the Democrats continued the ballot harvesting. The question is not, why didn't we stop them? Rather, it should have been, why didn't we think of that? And why didn't we do that? We were outmaneuvered. Now, I know that sounds borderline heretical, but Republicans sitting on their ballots and not voting has been one of the biggest problems of get-out-the-vote efforts since time immemorial. The Democrats chased down ballots not yet cast. Republicans, on the other hand, hope that something will change this year. These are some of the brutal facts. I am glad to hear that Donald Trump is getting behind this effort. We need to beat them at their own game. That means a data operation and a ground game and communication and talking to everyday Republicans and likely NAV supporters and money to run it all. Going into 2024, we need to spend less on consultants and more on the ground game. And that kind of planning and organizing needs to happen now in 2023. There is no reason we as Republicans who pride ourselves as the party of business cannot come up with a way to get every single Republican vote into that ballot box by Election Day. That should be our goal for 2024. Now, I also know that many Republicans find these kinds of tactics distasteful. As Republicans, we want people to vote once, to be alive, to vote on Election Day the way that we used to. And I am right there with you. But I am also all for voting security. I am all for auditing every election. There's no reason we don't do that now. 
I'm even for radical ideas like codes and other security measures on ballots so a ballot can be traced back to a voter so that a true forensic audit can be done. And that at any time, a voter can pull up the record to say, yes, that was my vote, or no way on God's green earth would I ever have voted for Tina Kotak. That has clearly been forged. But in 2020, the Mongols invaded. We felt looted. Our way of life and faith in America violated. The king was run out. The brutal fact is we are in a different country now, a different reality. We can't go back to what we had until we deal with the reality we are now in. Reforms can happen to bring us back to normal, but first, we must win the next war. One other thing on this, whether or not you personally believe there was voter fraud, it doesn't matter. Millions do. Millions all across the country have now said that until they fix the voter fraud, what's the point of voting? And that's like half your knights refuse to suit up and get on their horses. And that's a good way to get trampled. So let me back up a bit. As Debbie mentioned, I am the host of the iSpy Radio Show. We've been on air since January 2011. We're in our 13th year now, and we air on 7 a.m. radio stations around Oregon on Saturdays and Sundays. We started right here in Salem on KYKN 1430. We did part ways for a couple of years, but we we're proud to be back on KYKN at our original time, no less, 11 a.m. on Saturdays. We can also be heard throughout the Willamette Valley on KFIR 720 out of Albany twice on Saturdays at 11 a.m. and repeated at 5 p.m. If you happen to head outside the Willamette Valley or know people who are, we're also down in Coos Bay and Grants Pass and on three stations east of the mountains in Enterprise, LeGrand, and Baker City and an internet-only radio station based in Idaho. After the week's show airs on our network of stations, we load the podcast version to our own website, iSpyRadio.com, which then filters out to all of the podcast platforms, so you can listen at your convenience. And if you do do podcasting, we would love it if you gave us a subscribe and a like. Subscribe doesn't mean that you pay for anything, it just means you get a notification of a new show. We're still pretty new to all that, and I am admittedly the worst self-promoter, but I do know subscribing and liking helps bump us up and the algorithm ranking, which will then suggest us to more people looking for shows. If you're not a regular listener, what makes us different, I think, is the amount of research and analysis that goes into each one-hour show. 10, 20, sometimes even 40 hours. And we process that research and organize questions of our guests in a way that designed, specifically, for the audience to absorb it better. Both my producer and I are teachers and educators at heart. Also, I suppose I bring something to the table. I was a book editor, a book doctor for 20 years, spent a couple of years in the film industry, went back to school to pick up my MBA when the economy went Obama up, originally thinking that there must be some way for these small film companies I'd been working for to make a profit. But that led to another degree, a doctor of business administration. Like most married men, I have a wife. It's an interesting word, wife. From the Old English and Saxon weave, which loosely translated means, I have a life stenographer. <laughs> Don't take it personally, it's the English language. Actually, it meant both woman and wife, you know, what it used to mean 10 years ago. That book editing job is actually how I met her, but that's a story for a whole other time. In addition to being my life stenographer, she's also the producer for I Spy Radio, and she's the news director for KFIR 720. So iSpy is easily replicated and imitated. You just need 20 years of editing experience, a master's, a doctorate level analysis, and a producer who has land development experience, governmental experience, a ton of communications experience, and her own master's in education. Easy peasy. Have at it. I mention this because there are a couple of nuggets from my MBA classes that I want to pass on to you that are relevant for today's discussion. One is from my marketing classes. 
John Wanamaker is considered an early pioneer in marketing. He opened one of the first department stores in the late 1800s, which grew to 16 stores and eventually became part of Macy's. But despite his success, he is credited with saying this, Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. Believe me, it is possible to spend months and months coming up with marketing and advertising and messaging plans and test them out and on and on, only to have it not work out the way that you thought. And sometimes, plans you just sort of throw together go gangbusters. The lesson here is that when it comes to messaging and trying to persuade friends or families or voters who aren't Republican is this, you never really know in advance what will resonate. Republicans as a whole definitely need to step up their communication and messaging skills. They've been that way ever since I've been around them. But don't let not knowing hold you back because you never really know what will take off. Learn from what does or doesn't, but get out there and share your message. The other nugget is from my favorite MBA class, Strategic Management, and I've already peppered this presentation with it. To develop a good winning strategy, you must confront the brutal facts. These are the facts requiring painful, brutal honesty to assess where you are and what needs to happen, like King Bella. The brutal facts lead to the brutal truth, which can lead to a strategy that is brutal for your enemies, competitors. Facing the brutal facts led King Bella to the right reforms, and when the next challenge came, it was a brutal victory, so much so that the Mongols never invaded en masse ever again. Who here in 2024 would like to send the Marxist Mongols home with only their wife and a single horse? Down through the years, we've had some pivotal shows on iSpy Radio that have shaped or reshaped how we looked at certain issues. One that has always stuck with me is something Ken Ivory said back in 2014-ish, we were discussing some aspect with federal lands, and I asked, is this some sort of conspiracy? And he said, it doesn't matter if it's a conspiracy. The effect is the same. And that's something that we hang on to as we look into the machinations of big government. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy. The effect is the same. You'll hear some things today that you might think, conspiracy, but it doesn't matter if it is or isn't. The effect is the same. That mindset frames your approach to research and analysis and stops you from going way off trail. It could be a conspiracy, but the effects are the same. How does that apply? Because as you personally consume news and information, this mindset helps you focus on the effects, not the motivations. Put simply, you focus on the actions and the outcomes. If you're a regular listener, you know that we've done many, many shows on the environment and global warming, now known as climate change because they weren't getting the warming they needed to fit their models. That pesky Arctic sea ice just wouldn't go away. So a presto change of marketing, rebranding, and climate change is now the boogeyman on which literally every weather event can be blamed. Too hot, too cold, too much snow, not enough snow, too many hurricanes, too few plagues of frogs dropping from the sky. It's all because of climate change. It's like racism, but for weather. But the major takeaway is that, if you don't already know, climate change is the single biggest funding source for the left. We are talking hundreds of billions over the years, and now, just last year, 300 billions in a year. This is incredibly important because there is no similar taxpayer funding for issues on the right. Imagine the shrieking and the days and weeks of endless rage if the media and public had found out congressional Republicans gave $100 billion to the NRA. There would be no end of screaming. Worse, some Republicans in the House and Senate actually vote for bills that send taxpayer dollars to their political opponents under the guise of climate change and saving the earth. The Hungarians starve the Mongols, 
we need to emulate that. A series of shows that were absolutely pivotal for us were on disinformation. And this is what you really need to hear today because it explains so much of the current battlefield and what is happening in this country and the battle for your mind. In 2018, we interviewed Ron Rishlack, who co-authored the book Disinformation with Lieutenant General Ian Pajepa, who, before he defected to the U.S. in 1978, was a two-star general in the secret police of the Socialist Republic of Romania and the head of the Soviet Union's disinformation program. Disinformation, actual disinformation, is what happened to Trump in 2016-2017 and what we are continuing to see unleashed on an unsuspecting American public. Misinformation is simply that, bad information. It could be an outright lie, an honest mistake, just bad information someone thinks is right but is simply incorrect, the wrong answer. Disinformation is quite different. Disinformation is not a bunch of Trump supporters tweeting about some conspiracy theory or citizen journalists digging through Pfizer test studies and discovering that Pfizer lied about results or hid vaccine injuries and then sharing that online. General Pacheva describes it quite differently from how the media and their governmental propaganda masters are describing it. To them, disinformation is anything we disagree with and anything that might prove us to be liars. Instead, disinformation is a purposeful, reconstructed, falsified reality that is made so believable people believe the disinformation over the truth, even when confronted with evidence of the actual truth, even if they at one time knew and experienced the original truth. The disinformation has taken hold and altered their perception of reality. The human mind is a strange thing. Once convinced the lie is the truth, people will vehemently defend the lie, the human psyche simply does not like to be fooled and therefore will throw up all kinds of mental defenses to not be confronted with the fact that it had been fooled. Remember this for your communication attempts. Once ingrained, the disinformation becomes resistant and horribly hard to program. And this is why Trump immediately attacks lies, because you have to defuse them before they can take root. Just ask most Democrats about Trump being an agent of Russia. They still believe it. They explode at you if you dare challenge their belief. And oddly, they believe we're the ones suffering from disinformation. Genuine disinformation happens when there are state-level or big enough players involved coordinating among other high-level actors and influencers to reshape reality. Disinformation is almost always the territory of governments. It is disingenuous at best for the government, which literally creates disinformation to accuse individuals of doing it because individuals aren't capable of creating the wide-scale disinformation campaign. When you hear a government agent claiming others are spreading disinformation, that is disinformation. Or they are simply misusing the term, which gets back to misinformation. The way true disinformation works is that it frames people, or as I like to think, reframes people, rewriting history and manipulating records, documents, etc. to change their past and the way the public perceives them. It doesn't have to be negative. Heroes can be framed as criminals, yes, but criminally unworthies can also be framed as saints. Think of Obama and all the rewriting and recasting that went into changing his past. But the key is it requires what Pachepa called a kernel of truth, some grounding in the real world to give credibility. How many of you have heard of Hitler's Pope? Well, in case you don't know, Pius XII was Pope during World War II. But after the war, it was exposed as colluding with the Germans, even conspiring directly with Hitler. In the process of trying to remain officially neutral, I mean, there were German Catholics after all, Pius was blamed for not helping the Jews or doing enough to prevent the Holocaust. His silence, it was claimed, 
condemned millions to die. But it's all a lie. It's all disinformation, which is discussed in that book. And Ian Pachepa knew it was a lie because he personally ran the disinformation operation against Pius. The truth is, Pius was anything but silent. During the war, he was outspoken, even overstepping bounds to the point where he was praised by the New York Times and decried by the Germans as having lost all sense of neutrality. But less than two decades after the war, a massive disinformation campaign to discredit him and by extension the Catholic Church and damage faith and religion overall turned a genuine war hero into a villain. It was so complete, even people who lived through those years and knew what he had done, they heard his radio broadcast, turned against him and his legacy. Many in the Jewish community even today despise a once heroic religious icon due to the disinformation rather than the reality of his life which saved untold numbers of Jews. It's a fascinating story how it all worked, not least of which because it used highly advanced technology invented in the 1930s and perfected in the 1940s by a Hungarian no less. The guy was an early pioneer in handwriting and document forensic analysis. He invented a machine that could copy a person's handwriting and redraft a letter to say what they wanted it to say, and it was nearly flawless, only slipping up when there was genuine human error in wording or in facts. I had no idea that kind of technology existed back then. Then, as now, Soviet disinformation agents start their operation by gathering massive amounts of info on the target. Very mundane things like travel and locations and dates, but especially samples of their writing and personal correspondence, all to learn how the target spoke and communicated. Such documents allow disinformation specialists to imitate a target's word choice, unique phrasing, and so on, their verbal fingerprint, and then alter things just enough to make it hard even for experts to tell the difference that it wasn't written by the target himself. You actually do this in editing. A good editor can imitate an author's writing voice so well that a reader can't tell what the author wrote and what the editor ghost wrote for them. So to acquire those kinds of documents, Pachepa managed to get Roman, Romanian Soviet agents inside the Vatican's secret archives. These are the personal archives of the popes. By using the ruse that Romania was thinking about restoring ties with the Catholic Church. But to do that, they said they needed to find historical roots that might help the government publicly justify their change of heart. The Vatican fell for it. Always one to forgive. Once inside... They scoured the archives for innocuous documents written by Pius XII. They took photos, took these back to the office, used the machine to alter handwritten notes and letters in his own hand to be incriminating, along with other supporting forged documents. Then they went back and replaced the originals with the forgeries that, when needed later, were discovered as evidence of Pius's guilt. And it worked because who could dispute documents from the Vatican's own secret archives? It was the kernel of truth. I believe this explains why the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. I suspect Trump kept documents proving his innocence of the whole Russia collusion disinformation, or maybe he had evidence of their guilt, or maybe documents that proved election fraud, whatever it was, because you can't change documents and paper trails if someone has the originals of your kernel of truth that you are trying to fabricate. But a kernel of truth alone is not enough. For disinformation to work, it requires influencers, especially the media, politicians, respected societal leaders, celebrities. Oh, they love celebrities, and so forth. They need them to be in on it, to adopt the narrative, and to push, and to reinforce, and to add to the alternate reality to the point that the public believes the mushrooming lie and thus an alternate reality. And here's the thing. By the time Ian Pacheba defected in 1978, 
His agency had recruited one million agents in the West, in the media, newspapers, journalists, TV, and radio, academia, theater, film, politicians, the military, even seminaries, all working and coordinating and when called upon to help spread lies and reframe reality. Potential agents of disinformation were identified, recruited, trained, and inserted, if not already there, in all of the influential elements of society I just named. During our interview, I asked, after the fall of the Soviet Union, whatever happened to those one million agents? Ron said, they're still there. They continued on and kept recruiting and training and bringing more to their side. One million agents in 1978, 45 years ago. How many do you think are out there now? And do you really think the CIA and FBI debriefed the head of the Soviet Union's entire disinformation campaign and just said, oh, that's nice, and filed a report? Or do you think that they've been working on perfecting techniques? The entire Russia collusion narrative smacks of disinformation. Thanks to John Brennan's handwritten notes during a White House meeting with James Comey, James Clapper, Obama, and Joe Biden, Brennan's CIA had learned, by intercepting Russian intelligence no less, that Hillary planned to smear Trump with Russia collusion to distract people from her email scandal. And there it is. Right from the start, this was a fake story. Obama and Biden knew, and the heads of the intelligence agencies all knew it was fake. Now, I'm not a prosecutor, but it just seems that if I were John Durham, that's where I'd start. Brennan's notes are basically a signed confession. Because three days after that meeting, Comey opened the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation into Trump-Russia collusion. Why did he do that? Why did he open that, knowing it was fake? Because that investigation was the kernel of truth Hillary needed for a successful disinformation campaign. Oh look, an official investigation by our own FBI, no less. The FBI wouldn't be investigating if it weren't true. During Russia collusion, we saw telltale signs signaling that it was a disinformation campaign. The FBI scooped up all kinds of information and personal documents from Trump and from his campaign and his staff. They used the media. What happened to not talking about an open investigation? They gave him a clever moniker that stuck, Putin's puppet. Officials weighed in. Heads of intelligence agencies all swore that such and such was true to give credibility to the investigation as each juicy detail was leaked. They misused official arms of the government, especially the courts, lying, fabricating evidence. And that, to me, was the really sick thing that happened during all of this. Our own intelligence agencies, our own DOJ and FBI were willing to put people in jail to cover their own crimes and what they had done. They also planted and invented stories like a direct secret means of communications between Alpha Bank and the Russians, again, to anchor the allegations. And with each fake detail leaked that the media claimed proved the case, it helped cement a new reality. And the entire left and far too many Republicans bought it. And remember, in 2018, we had all those Republicans suddenly retire from Congress because they didn't want to be tarnished with Trump and his Russians. Wasn't that convenient? because it led to the takeover of the House, which led to the impeachment trials. Remember, Republicans like Paul Ryan know all about these kinds of operations, which tells me he was probably in on it, and probably right from the beginning. Knowing what we know now, this is why I said Trump was never going to win that election. And given the scale of this, and COVID, and January 6th, and global warming itself as a huge and profitable disinformation campaign, all of this begs the question, what else have we been lied to about? What lies are they working on right now?
given their ability to create kernels of truth out of nowhere and create a believable reality around it, what can we trust anymore? How do we trust? How much of what we see is stagecraft and how can we know when it is or isn't? Cognitive warfare is the next true battlefront. And the CIA has been busy perfecting techniques they learned from Chinese mind control, psychological experiments at our own universities, which were funded by the CIA, no less, and Russian disinformation operations. This is what you're facing, what we're all facing. State-level disinformation campaigns to twist reality to try to force you to believe something that is not true. All for political purposes, to maintain power and control, and to get you to comply. Separating truth from disinformation is only going to get harder as disinformation agents create new technologies and new methods. If they had machines that could flawlessly forge handwriting in the 1940s, imagine what they have now. Artificial intelligence is growing literally exponentially. ChatGPT, one form of AI, is already so advanced that Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson asked it to write an article about a given topic in the style of Jordan Peterson. It spit out the entire article in about 20 seconds. And it was so good that he himself said that he could hardly tell that he hadn't written it. I guarantee the government has far more sophisticated AI that is decades ahead of what we the public have access to now. We live in a dangerous world. We have moved from political competitors to a world where our own government is literally willing to betray us, willing to frame and lock up innocent people. There is nothing they won't do because trillions of dollars are up for grabs. And they need to protect what they've already done and to protect their own crimes. And even if money and greed isn't their motivation, it's the knowledge that by seizing power control, they can force their politics and beliefs on you. And if not you, the next generation. Look at how gender dysphoria used to be a severe mental illness and treated as such. Compare that to what it is now where they convince children, underage children, to willingly mutilate their own bodies to satisfy the weird, sick, twisted fantasies of the adults in their lives. There is a madness that has grabbed hold of this world as the left dropped all pretense and secrecy of who they really were all along. A madness that probably has many of you, as it does me, wondering, where is God in all of this? The Mongol Marxists are everywhere, attacking not on five fronts, but on hundreds. They are well-funded. They are taking our own supplies, our own tax dollars. They are attacking our children. They are attacking our country and our future. So, faced with the modern-day golden horde, how do we stand a chance? How do we win? First, just like King Bella, don't give up. He faced the brutal facts of where he had failed, but he learned and adopted new strategies to try to overcome them. It should be clear to you that we cannot keep playing the same game using the same tactics and expect different results. Did King Bella know for sure that his changes would work? No. But he knew he had to do something. Doing nothing is the only choice that has a guaranteed result. As far as facing the brutal facts of what Republicans got wrong, well, you probably have your own list already, and I'd be happy to discuss those and such things some other time. But here are a few things I think Republicans can and should focus on. First, we have got to get more funding. When we're faced with Democrats getting billions of taxpayer funding, we need all the money we can get. So we'll need to find ways to dig deeper, work a little harder, be more inventive to find the resources we need. But you know, there is a silver lining there. When you think about it, this massive funding disadvantage also means that Republican core messages and ideology and policies are better and more appealing than the Democrats. Think about it. 
with all of those billions of dollars they have at their disposal, and yet they barely win? And when elected, we have got to starve the left of its public financing. In the meantime, we also need to get smarter about how we spend money, starve your enemies, feed your allies. And when it comes to such things as advertising, Mark Zuckerberg does not need more Republican money. Nor do woke TV networks whose writers hate Republicans, but our ads help pay their salaries. We need candidates who are well-armored against attacks, who don't have baggage that suddenly materialize to sabotage their campaigns. Individually, we need to be well-armored. Read, research, share what you find with your friends, encourage them to share what they find with you. And yes, we'd love it if you listen to iSpy Radio and share that. We need to focus on issues on which we can win, and we have a lot of them. You probably already have your own list of those as well. Safety, more police, lower taxes, better business environment. But we also need an issue that has a lot of appeal and has the potential to bring disaffected Democrats over. To me, that issue is school choice. We recently did a five-part series on sh- of shows on real school choice, and there is so much upside to this. I would highly encourage all of you, individually and perhaps as a group, to get behind school choice. Signature drives, donations. She told us they estimate they will need at least $15 million to go head-to-head with those who want to keep our kids in failing schools. School choice right now is sweeping the nation. Six states have already passed it. Governor Sarah Sanders just signed theirs into law yesterday. It has massive upside and potential even here in Oregon. And it does so much of what I've already talked about today. It would deny provisions to people who hate you. The status quo lets just spend even more money because that will fix it this time education lobby hates conservatives. Why keep funding a failed system anyway? In business, you don't keep funding a product that keeps breaking and failing and costing more money. School choice puts parents in charge so kids can get not just an actual education, what a novel concept that is, but an education that aligns with their family's beliefs and values and one that is best suited for their child's unique education needs and learning styles. And school choice has the potential to radically impact the next generation for incredible good, ending the left's monopoly on education and their indoctrination in education, or instead of education. So much of what we need to improve on is tied, one way or another, to effective communication. Remember, you never know what messages will resonate. The important thing is to put it out there. Don't be silent. You just don't know. I know we're getting down in time, but I just want to share one last story. One of my all-time favorite teachers was Professor Collins, who taught anthropology at Jamestown Community College. He told us the story of his first solo field study, where he got a grant to head to some incredibly remote mountain village in Central America, or maybe South America, somewhere along the, the equator. It was a tiny, isolated indigenous tribe of about 100 people, very primitive, like stepping back in time, but they only spoke their own unique tribal language. A few traders had befriended them and would go up by donkey to the village a few times a year, mainly to check on them, but also to trade for wool, various handcrafted items, artwork, and the like. Before setting off, Professor Collins managed to get hold of practically the only book in existence about the village, written a century ago by another anthropologist, which most importantly included a rough dictionary of their language and some useful phrases. This was extremely important because once the guy dropped him off, he'd be on his own for months. In his excitement, he devoured it and cobbled together words and phrases and sentences and began to feel confident he'd at least be able to communicate enough to break the ice and ask for and talk about basic things until they learned more through immersion. The book stressed repeatedly how very important corn was to the tribe, culturally. 
Besides being their main food source, it was sacred to them, part of their religion. So one phrase that really jumped out at them was their flowery, formal greeting. Just during a Joe Biden hearing, totally making up, it went something like, Tumandio reo upuku kutate. Joe Biden probably actually has said that at some point. It meant, your corn silk is beautiful and glows in the sun. Finally, the big day arrived. The whole flight down, he had his nose buried in the book, practicing under his breath various words and sentences, but especially, Tumandio reo upuku kutate. He kept practicing at the back of the bus as it thumped along what was technically a road to the village where he'd meet his guide, Tumandio Reo Ipugo Kutate. At night, he practiced in the hotel while waiting for his guide, Tumandio Reo Ipugo Kutate. When the guide finally arrived, who didn't speak any English at all and more Mayan than Spanish, he was told that the village was expecting him and looked forward to meeting him. Professor Collins loaded up his gear and hopped on the donkey as the guide walked alongside in silence, and they started the long, slow, several-day ride up the mountain path. Silently, he practiced to himself over and over, Tumandio Reo Upuku Kutate. As they came down into the mountain valley, sure enough, he saw huge fields of corn in all directions, lit up by the sun. His excitement became almost unbearable. The leaves waved in the gentle breeze as if welcoming him. It being late summer, he could see the tufts of corn silk. Oh, this would be brilliant, brilliant! As they got closer, he caught his first glimpses of the villagers. As they peered around from huts or out windows, alerted by his presence, they began to stream in from the outlying settlements, all heading to the village center to see the white man, the very white man. They were handsome people, but they were completely naked. Men, women, children, not a stitch of clothes in sight, except for the occasional hat and the belts of the men, from which hung knives and machetes. But he had expected that. The book had mentioned all during the tropical summer and well into the fall, they just preferred to go naked. Even so, for a young graduate student, it was a bit disconcerting. So to take his mind off of things that he shouldn't be seeing, he silently practiced over and over in his head as the big moment drew near. Tumandio reo upuku kutate. Tumandio reo upuku kutate. Finally, they reached the center of the village. They were gathered on porches, on rooftops, all silent, all watching him. You could hear a pin drop as Professor Collins dismounted, his heart absolutely pounding in his chest as he took in the crowd. All eyes were on him. He opened his mouth and, for a moment, nothing came out. He cleared his throat and swallowed, and then in a loud voice so the entire village could hear him, he said, Tumandio reo upuku kutate! The entire village gave a collective gasp and then went completely silent. For a split second he thought, Oh man, I totally nailed it! They are so impressed! But eyes went wide, mouths dropped, men reached for their knives and machetes. Even the guide did a double take and took a step back. Somewhere, a cock crowed. As the silence continued for a few painful tense seconds, but which seemed like minutes or even hours, Professor Collins panicked mind race. What did he do wrong? And what should he do now? Just then, a distinctively female giggle broke the silence, followed by another and another as the women began to laugh. The men relaxed and took their hands off their weapons. What the dictionary had failed to mention was that their language was a tonal one, where the stress of syllables created different and distinct meanings depending on how it was pronounced. To their ears, there is a very big difference between mandio and mandio, which is what he should have said. We sort of have this in English to some extent, like when your wife says, Mark, and Mark. Instead of the traditional formal greeting of, your corn silk is beautiful and glows in the sun, what they heard was, your pubic hair is beautiful and glows in the sun. The lesson here is we need to be able to speak the language of the people whom we'd like to persuade to become our friends. 
to speak it genuinely, not simply repeat what someone else said, to know what matters to them so that we can win them over. In 2020 and 2022, much like the Hungarians in 1241, we were blindsided. But we can learn from major defeats to achieve major victories. Did King Bela know for sure that his reforms would work? That he had the right strategy? For all he knew, the Golden Horde were implementing their own strategies. We always have to go with our best guesses about the future based on what we know did not work. But the important thing is to do something because doing nothing is the only choice in life with a guaranteed outcome. Finally, remember that King Bela died before he could see the results of his labors. But the changes he made saved the next generation. And that's at the heart of what we need to do. Fight for the next generation and our fellow countrymen who to a large extent haven't yet realized they're at war or that they even need saving. Our job is to keep fighting until these others can wake up to what's happening and start fighting for themselves. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it encouraged you. If you want to listen again or share it with people you think might want to hear it or need to hear it, you can find the whole speech at ispyradio.com. Look for show 1310. And if you have questions or comments, drop me an email. Mark at ispyradio.com. Mark at ispyradio.com. And if you liked it, please share that. Because as we say every week, the best information that you know good if you don't use it. Megan, what do you think? I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.